0: Welcome to the High Point Baptist Church sermon cast, expository Bible sermons from the preaching and teaching ministry of High Point Baptist Church in Larksville, Pennsylvania, for the glory of God and the proclamation of His Word. We thank you for listening. And now, High Point Baptist Church pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr. I invite
1: you to turn in your Bibles to... First Timothy chapter six. I guess my mouth isn't working yet either, Tom, but uh, hopefully it will momentarily. It is. It is such a joy to be back with all of you, though. I, I kid you not in that. No matter how busy, crazy, hectic life becomes, all is forgotten, isn't it, when we just come together to worship our Lord and are reminded of His grace and His sovereignty and um. Reinvest ourselves in the body life and and as we progress along in First Timothy chapter six uh, we 're going to be finishing up this section today that we uh, left off at before our our son Nicholas was born, and um, we 'll be finishing this book up in just a few short weeks, and then we 'll be in the midst of the holiday season already. So uh, we'll probably be taking a look at some related messages given that context, and um, we'll see where we go from there. That has not yet been decided, but we certainly look forward with anticipation uh, should the Lord tarry what what He would have for us uh, in His Word. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, follow along with me, starting in verse 3, and we're continuing through verse 5 if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, of language, Evil suspicions and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. You remember, last time we were together, we began by giving you an illustration of a threat or rather what was ultimately determined to be a perceived threat of botulism, uh, the greatest um, botulism threat, international botulism threat in recent history, and uh, to which the company that was responsible was sued hundreds of millions of dollars, even though there was no actual botulism bacteria in their dairy products, but because of how they mishandled the situation, rather carelessly and flippantly, they were sued that large sum of money, and we said that the shot that was heard around the world was that when it comes to the matter of a potentially deadly food-borne illness, we cannot afford to treat those things frivolously, no matter how real uh, we may or may not think that threat to be. And we also accounted a number of those areas in our lives as American Christians where we tend to be consumed with the temporal and what goes into the physical body and, and being rather obsessed even about all of those things and being severely disciplined and careful about uh, all the products and, and things that uh, affect us. Um, if you look on just about any label that exists, you'll find that California has labeled everything uh, to be a product that is known by the state of California and nobody else. To be a cancer-causing agent, and uh, but that is a label that is an important label that has come to mean nothing at all because, in effect, that label is printed on any products that are either themselves um, cancer-causing if they're ingested or used in um, in excess, or if they are made in a facility that uses products that are known to be cancer-causing. So all plastics, obviously, that are made from various oils and things of that nature are going to be uh, identified with this label. Any of your vehicles, which are composed of plastic components and rubber and metals and are created in factories where there are emissions and so on and so forth, not to mention the emissions that they produce themselves, are going to bear this label. Apartments and parking garages are going to bear this label because in their parking lots you'll have vehicles that are obviously producing emissions. Your shampoos will be uh, showing this label. And I remember the first time I saw and noticed that label on my shampoo and I immediately thought, well, good grief, I'm not using (laughs) this shampoo anymore. If it's going to give me cancer, what's the point of that? I'd rather have a dirty head. So uh, I stopped using that shampoo and tried to find another one and realized all the shampoos uh, had the same label. But, but that, that goes to show you the extent to which we show great concern over what goes into and what happens with our physical body, but very little concern, it seems, over what happens to our spiritual body, the things that matter for eternity, the things that can destroy us, cause eternal death. Those things we tend to care very little about. And it is remarkable It is really remarkable how consumed that we we can be with what goes into the body physically. All the while, uh, we couldn't care less about the body spiritually. Our diet, as evangelical Christians, has been haphazard at best. That would be the best way to describe it. For decades now, we've given up sound verse-by-verse exposition characterized by rich theology, what hebrews 5:12 refers to as solid food rather than milk and exchanged it instead for the lightweight self-help feel good theology and that has resulted in a disease in the american church that is nothing short of deadly except obviously as we said we're not talking about physical death here we're talking about eternal death and permanent separation from God, and all that is good, forever under His wrath, forever under divine judgment for rejecting the true gospel of God in hell. That's the eternal death that we're talking about. Eternal death and permanent separation from God. And if you think that's a little bit of an overstatement. You might be willing to consent that our theology is weak. Maybe we have taken a little bit of an eclectic approach, but so what? I mean, it's not really going to affect me that significantly spiritually. And, but maybe you'll even go beyond that, beyond most contemporary Christians, and say, well, certainly it doesn't provide spiritual health and has contributed to spiritual weakness... Uh, maybe spiritual lethargy and those kinds of things, weak and immature Christian living, to say that American evangelical Christianity has rejected the gospel has been teaching a message in the church that results in eternal death, that's a little bit of extreme position. Well, it's not extreme. Even Christianity today which is, uh, which is a pretty nominal Christian magazine at best and pretty liberal, wrote an article this week in response to a survey that was conducted by Air Ministries confirming a pattern of research that they've been doing over the last couple of years, which means that the survey that they conducted is not an anomaly. It's showing a trend And so Christianity Today published this article in response to that and said that if you're an evangelical Christian, you probably believe in heresy. Did you hear that, folks? A liberal Christian magazine said that if you are an evangelical Christian, you probably believe in heresy. That confirms what we said last time, quoting Phil Johnson, the executive director from Grace to You, who said that he believes that the state of evangelical Christianity in America today, he believes, is worse doctrinally than even the Catholic Church was, more apostate than than the Roman Catholic Church was at the time of the Reformation. We have factual evidence that that's what the study by Ligonier Ministries found. And by the way, the most serious heresies are those that result in a different gospel, a different Christ, and it is a fact of history that every major error that has infiltrated the church has always affected those two key things, the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ. It has always affected the church, and every major error has been either Christological or soteriological in nature. In other words, they've attacked either what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, or they attack what the Bible says about salvation. And 2 John, verses 10 to 11, makes it clear that someone who worships a false Christ or preaches a false gospel is not a Christian. It's that simple. Now, according to the survey that was done by Air which again has been able to show that consistent trend moving this direction over the past several years, the majority of evangelicals now believe that although everyone sins a little, most people are good by nature. That was the Pelagian heresy condemned by the Council of Ephesus in 431. Heresy. The majority of Christians in the American evangelical church now affirm And that modified, that Pelagian heresy, modified into the semi-Pelagian heresy, which is virtually identical to modern-day Arminianism, and that was condemned as heresy at the Council of Orange in 529. To help you understand how really serious this is, it was when the Roman Catholic Church affirmed a doctrine of salvation that was semi-Pelagian in the 16th century, that was when the church, the Catholic church, officially became apostate. All Pelagius did was deny that we are born sinners. And because we are born in a neutral position, we have free will. And now the majority of evangelicals believe that. Not only that, but the majority of evangelicals today now believe that God accepts the worship of all false or uh, all religions, true or false. Whether it's the one true religion or false religion, it's of little consequence. God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity or Judaism or Islam or whatever else. And half of evangelicals disagree that only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior, receive God's gift of eternal salvation. That's, in part, the heresy of Socionism, which developed in the 16th and 17th centuries that taught universalism, among other things. Socionism was just theological liberalism. About a third of evangelicals believe that our beliefs are not objectively true. They have adopted a form of Gnosticism that was condemned as rank apostasy by key pastors in the early church, such as Irenaeus, Tertullian Ignatius, uh, Justin Martyr, and even the Apostle Paul in Galatians is Gnosticism, which is very difficult to define because it's mystical in nature anyway, very New Agey. Uh, and And Paul himself called that an apostate gospel as that was developing even in the first century. And note this. Note this. But now, 78%. You get that number? 78% of evangelicals now believe that Jesus is the first and created being by God the Father. In other words, to borrow from the Arian heresy, there was a time when he was not. There was a time when Jesus Christ did not exist because he's been created by the Father. That Arian heresy was condemned at the Council of Nicaea in 325, and by the way, again, the councils of Constantinople and Chalcedon in the 4th and 5th centuries. And so much can be learned about the Arian heresy because the reason why it was so successful and still exists today in Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and now evangelicalism today is because Arianism was different from many of the other heresies that the church dealt with up to that point, but it brought heresy into the church instead of attacking from outside the church. And it did that through a slow, quiet infiltration that gained strength and popularity through the personal charisma of popular preachers and teachers. And taking advantage of a culture of tolerance... It grew to massive proportions before anybody stood up to stop it, which sounds eerily similar to the challenges that we face in the church today. The mantra of tolerance is the source of spiritual botulism and unlike botulism that is relatively rare and unlike botulism that only results today in death about 5 to 10% of the time spiritual botulism is extremely common and results in spiritual eternal death 100% of the time and alarmingly what we saw last time was that the antidote to spiritual Botulism is sound doctrine. But the primary thing being advocated even by most pastors today is that the last thing the church needs is more teaching. And so they become consumed with all kinds of methods and movements and Whatever else while spiritual botulism leaks through their doors. And of the few churches where spiritual botulism does not exist, many of those less left experience such malnutrition that they are very poorly equipped to respond should the deadly bacteria ever find its way through through their doors. And obviously, we don't want to be that way. And we would be in no position to be physicians of the soul unless we are adequately equipped in the truth. We said that truly biblical and well-nourished truth results in spiritual life and vitality and holiness and Christ-likeness and sanctification and proper living. Spiritual health comes from truth, but spiritual weakness comes from being weak in the truth. The one who is spiritually ill is one who is theologically weak, and the one who is theologically weak is also spiritually ill. You can't be a healthy Christian if you're a theologically weak Christian. But how do you tell? How do you tell if a ministry is offering spiritual food that is laced with spiritual botulism? And that's what Paul informs us of in verses 3 to 5. He gives us the symptoms of spiritual food that is laced with spiritual botulism. The first symptom was in verse 3 that we looked at last time. And that was doctrinal perversion. Teaching that has gone adrift. Teaching that differs from or contradicts the teaching of Scripture. But now we have another one in verse 4, and and this too is really important. There's going to be three more that we look at today, but this one is personal arrogance. Look with me again at verse 4. If, just to back up in in verse 3, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's what the sound words are, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, verse 4 he is conceited and understands nothing, but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words. Conceited is the main characterization of the false teacher. And the reason is because he has rejected what God has said. Look at what Paul says. He is both conceited and understands nothing. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? I tell you, you get a whole lot of people who go off to college or get an MA or a PhD or some prefix attached to their name. And all of a sudden, they think the world of themselves and they're all so puffed up. You know, They're enlightened and they're so smart because uh, they they bought into the dogma that was told them by stupid people teaching them stupid things they're absolutely ignorant and people call that intellectualism and oh why why if you still believe in things like historical reliability of the gospels or the verbal inspiration of scripture that's really cute but you're just a simpleton Why? Well, because I'm an intellectual elite. I have my degree. And that's what the person who gave me the degree said. And, And that's what the person who gave the person with the degree said. And that's what the person with the person who gave the person the degree said. It's not real intellectualism, it's just stupid it's stupid foolishness this is exactly what paul is getting at he says they understand nothing these people who are advocating themselves and promoting themselves as those who have such great knowledge in the church these are people paul says who understand nothing why they can't even get the word of god right they're so puffed up that what they think is uh, they think that what they think is more important than what god thinks they think that what they say somehow is some greater intrinsic worth and value and superiority to what the Word of God has said. Well, that's because, well, don't you, don't you know that's what all the psychological research has said? Well, don't you know that's because, well, isn't that the, what the science has said? Well, isn't that because this is what our society, the population has said? Or this is what the politicians say? Well, how can you reject what the politicians say? I mean, God forbid... And so they compromise what the Word of God says. And they'll readily and happily tell you that what the Word of God says, well, it says that, but we the enlightened We the Enlightened will profess XYZ. Second Peter two twelve says that they're like unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. The scripture doesn't mince words with false teachers. There's an old Arab proverb, he who knows not and knows not that he knows not is a fool. Avoid him. But in postmodernism, those are the people we love. That is actually... Considered academic freedom. That's been even called humility in the American church. Errol Proverbs continues He who knows not and knows that he knows not. So here's a guy who doesn't know anything, but at least he knows he doesn't know anything. Teach him. That guy's got enough humility to be teachable. He who knows and knows not that he knows is asleep. Wake him. He who knows and knows that he knows is a wise man. Follow him. Well, what does Jesus say in Matthew 7, verse 24? The wise man is one who hears his words words, the words of our Lord, and acts on them. He knows, and he knows that he knows, so he does. That's the one you follow. But we're talking about the ones who know not, and know not that they know not, and who are fools. And remember, this isn't a wholesale rejection of Christianity, because first, in First Timothy, These are guys that are masquerading around the church. These are false shepherds. And so what they do is they take a buffet approach to Christianity, and they keep all the things they generally like and reject, uh, whatever disagrees with their own philosophy or the wisdom of men or the latest psychological research. 1 Corinthians uses the same idea to talk about the person who's arrogant because he thinks so much of his own intellect that he thinks that... He has within himself the answer to knowledge and truth to the point where he would presume to contradict God. So make no mistake, while the horrifying consequences of eternal damnation for false theology is the worst thing that can happen to you, the blasphemy against God is the greatest consequence. And to blaspheme God because you think your inherent knowledge is superior to His revealed in His Word is ludicrous. And if you're that foolish, in reality, you don't know anything about anything. Conceited, then, is a good word for it, isn't it? Actually, this is a good example where the Bible refers to mental illness as a theological problem. And it could be translated that way. I told you last time that this section between verses three and five is just is just filled with medical kind of terminology. And so what in effect Paul says, the word that he uses here for being conceited, is a word that basically means he's sick in the head. He's mentally ill. He's irrational. This guy is nonsensical. This is a person who hears the Word and changes it. This is a person who knows the Word of God and distorts it, twists it, ignores it, or rejects it. Colossians 2.18 says, They are inflated without cause in their fleshly mind. This is also someone who, is, who hears doctrine and is indifferent to it. In fact, is it fair to say that Christians who don't really care about deep doctrine are conceited? Is that fair? It's absolutely fair to say that. Christians who don't care about deep doctrine are conceited. Remember verse 3? If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words, whose words? Whose words are we talking about? Those of our Lord Jesus Christ. And with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. So, again, who does the doctrine belong to? Where does doctrine conforming to godliness come from? Where does deep doctrine conforming to deep godliness come from? Whose words are they? Those are our Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what makes a Christian a Christian? You agree with the Lord Jesus Christ. So, what does that say then about the Christian who says, I don't really care much about what Jesus said? Well, the Christian loves Jesus Christ and all that he has said. So, yes. Every Christian, then, must love theology, must love deep doctrine. Indifference is conceit. And that phrase does not agree with sound words is a, is a word picture that describes someone who sees doctrine, but he isn't drawn to it. You got that? He sees doctrine. He's not drawn to it, though. He doesn't desire to come alongside it. That's not his interest. He'd rather stand on his own. That's not all. The word sound means pure. It's the same root that we get the term hygienic from. In other words, Christians are drawn to hygienic teaching. They can't stand teaching that is laced with botulism. They're not going to go on the Christian broadcasting network and listen to Rick Warren or Benny Hinn and say, well, I still like the guy and I'll chew on whatever's good that might come out of them and just spit out the fat. Christian doesn't have an appetite for that. They're drawn to teaching instead that is hygienic, where they don't have to worry about spitting out the bad pits all the time quite a lot of people look at what Paul says next. The false teacher is obsessed with controversial questions and wrangling about words and to them what that means is that when we talk about theology and sound doctrine uh, that's what that is. They just phew, their brain goes up in smoke. They tune out. Their eyes glaze over. They begin to think about what's for lunch. They just tune out. I mean come on. Tomato, tomato. Tomato. That's all we're talking about here, right? When we're talking about doctrine, it doesn't really matter. I don't want to hear about penal substitution or the hypostatic union or propitiation or imputation or immutability or predestination or particular redemption. But listen, identifying, clarifying, speaking clearly and precisely about our theology is not what Paul is talking about when he's talking about wrangling about words. He's not defending lightweight, lowest common denominator Christianity. These people are diseased. Naseo is the verb for morbid interest. It means they're just sick. They're just sick with all of their know-nothing pontificating and nonsensical integrationism and their high-minded pseudo-intellectualism. Questioning everything. Denying reality. Battling with words and battling over words. This is what it sounds like. Genesis three one. Has God really said? How how can anybody really be certain or dogmatic? How can you be assertive about truth? Well, we, we know what God said, but nobody can really know what he means by what he said. Genesis 3.1, has God really said? And they go into these disputes about words, or better translated word battles. They go on the attack. They love controversy. They love stirring the pot because they're not motivated to build up the body. They criticize and undermine it till they tear it apart. This is actually a principle of rhetoric that we've been studying in Corinth when you were in an argument where the goal was just to rip someone to pieces destroy them, mar their reputation permanently. It's kind of the same idea as what was happening there. What is intolerable, though, is to have people who simply accept the Bible as it is and believe the Bible for what it says. I mean... Holy cow, if if everybody's going to be on the same page, and everybody's got to be on the same page with what the Bible says, what about my academic freedom? They have to have that. And obviously that has the opposite effect of sound words that leads to godliness and unity in the faith, which leads us to our our next symptom of spiritual botulism. First we had doctrinal perversion, then we had personal arrogance, and now we have malicious behavior. Last time we said that there's always a correlation between moral corruption and doctrinal corruption, right? Right? And alternatively, sound doctrine always produces holiness in the lives of God's people. So the third symptom of spiritual botulism is simply acting on the depravity of the mind. You can't advocate, you can't teach depraved doctrine without it affecting your behavior. You can't believe in depraved doctrine without it affecting your behavior. That's why truth is so important. This is always an internal, sickly motivation for overturning good doctrine and sound words taught by the apostles and passed down through the history of the true church, playing the heretic sympathizer, uh, pretending they're defenders of the oppressed by overzealous, the overzealous establishment in the church. They espouse plain heresy and then cry out that they're being misunderstood. Now, they're the victims of the latest witch trial. They do that to pull the wool over the eyes of their followers who will continue to blindly follow them. And by the way, if you're the one that is defending the truth, the disciples of their false theology will ironically call you the one who's factious and spiritually mature, Being an arrogant, simplistic fundamentalist. That's how they always work. They're not in the church to serve the church with their spiritual gifts because they haven't been given any spiritual gifts to serve the church. They're not saved. They're in the church to divide the people from the established and proven leadership by appealing to the flesh. They identify themselves as men of the people. Look, I, I, I'm a man of the people. I'm here for you. I'm here to tell you how valuable and important you are. I'm here to tell you that the cross, the cross is here to remind you of your intrinsic worth rather than your depravity, your uselessness, your corruption, your spiritual death that demands redemption and regeneration. But Paul calls them men of evil suspicions and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. In other words, their behavior is like people outside the church. They're a constant rub, just undermining the work of the church's ministry. Except they're not undermining the work of the ministry from the outside of the church, they're doing it from inside. They cause abrasion. So, just like botulism... Uh, can be spread through contaminated food. These men spread their spiritual botulism through their contaminated spiritual food, but they also spread their botulism through infecting the abrasions they cause. Now listen, these, these guys are not just misguided, but you know they're trying to their very best to sincerely serve God. Some will argue that, but that, that's actually a wholesale rejection of the clarity, sufficiency, and authority of the Scriptures. They're, they're not sincere, just misunderstood. And they're not just sincere servants of God who, who are just a little misguided. Romans 8.7 says they have minds set on the flesh hostile towards God. And that's why they're deprived of the truth. They're hostile. They're at enmity with God. Most likely, the tense that Paul uses here is a passive tense, which means there's an, a judicial act that is going on here. That's like Jesus said in John chapter 6 that he, he does these things so that seeing they may not see and hearing they may not comprehend. That's why he teaches them in parables. Nothing but a riddle. Because they had the revelation of God, it was sufficient, and they compromised it, changed it. They twist and distort they never truly received the mind of Christ. Their minds are totally carnal. They're at enmity with God. They're completely corrupt, incapable of rightly discerning and applying the truth. For them, the gospel has become something to extort. That's all. And that takes us to our final symptom. The fourth symptom, they are motivated by greed. End verse 5. They suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And Paul is in the the minds of these heretics now. This is where their motivation comes from. By gain, he's not talking about spiritual gain, because that would be true, wouldn't it? Godliness is a means of spiritual gain. Paul actually will affirm that in verse 6. Godliness actually is a means of gain, great gain. When accompanied by contentment. True godliness stores up treasure in heaven. So that's gain. (laughs) But the kind of gain that false teachers are interested in is temporal. It's gain that's fleeting. The, The same kind of gain that Satan offered Jesus Christ in the wilderness. Everything that Satan offered Jesus in the wilderness is a kind of gain. False teachers are interested in Matthew chapter four verses three and four. Jesus is hungry, and Satan tempts him to uh, convert stones into bread. So he tempts Christ with the lust of the flesh. Then in Matthew chapter four verses five to seven, Satan tempts Jesus with the pride of life and tells him to throw himself down from the temple portico where everybody would see him rescued and. Uh, rescued from death by angels, and no doubt then he would, they would anoint him as their king and he would never be crucified. And then in Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, Satan tempts Jesus with the lust of the eyes by offering him all the wealth of the kingdoms of the world. All this is yours if you would just bow down and worship me. That's the kind of gain false teachers are interested in. So, what they're motivated by. They want to indulge the flesh. They want to indulge their arrogance, their pride. They want to indulge their eyes with all the gain the world has to offer. Now, it's definitely true that some might look at pastoral ministry and they look at televangelists and so on and say, Boy, that's an industry I can extort. You know, I can really make it there. Look at those people. They are so gullible, they're just giving their money. I I mean, that guy doesn't even represent what they say they believe. But, you know, if he tells them that you put $100 or empty out all the money in your house to buy this holy cloth, he'll send it to you, and they'll believe it. So I, I can really do well in that environment. There's any conversation with your average Joe Christian and you realize that he's undiscerningly gullible and whimsical, so they go into ministry knowing that they can manipulate that. Kasi Hinn is a name some of you are familiar with. He's a nephew of the well-known televangelist, uh, health, wealth, prosperity, gospel preacher, Benny Hinn. And uh, Benny Hinn was training Costi Hinn as a disciple, and Costi traveled with him all around the United States, all around the world, and they would stay in these hotels that would cost $20,000 a night. And that was the lifestyle that was being offered to Costi, and he rejected all of that when he got saved. Some go into ministry knowing that if they play on unsuspecting, whimsical Christians or nominal Christians or self-deceived Christians, they, they can turn a huge profit. Others, though, go into ministry with maybe slightly nobler aspirations, but still themselves unregenerate. The Puritan Richard Baxter warned pastors of his day, Many a preacher is now in hell who hath a hundred times called upon his hearers to use the utmost care and diligence to escape it. Believe it, brethren, God never saved any man for being a preacher, nor because he was an able preacher. So many enter ministry, perhaps themselves deceived, false converts. I remember many of my peers in undergrad when asked, why do you believe that you were being called into ministry? Quite frankly, most of them, well, you know, I, I realized that, that a lot was put into me by my pastor or youth pastor, and I'm just so thankful for him. So I, I want to go into ministry to honor him. Well, that might be noble. I'll say you better not go into pastoral ministry to honor any man. Or because any man expects you to. Or because the Christian community recognizes it, and rightfully so, as an honorable thing. But because God has called you. Many will enter the ministry for noble but wrong aspirations, and many more entering the ministry themselves deceived. Having a depraved mind, then they become discontent with their ministries or perhaps taste the deceptive fruit the world has to offer, and they entertain their lust, and their gospel is slowly, almost imperceptibly compromised become really frustrated when their church doesn't grow as fast as the churches across the street. Become discontent with the intrinsic power of the gospel message. So they begin to do whatever it takes. Slowly, surely, gradually compromising. In order to receive ultimately the accolades of man maybe a better-paying salary, a little bigger church. And eventually it becomes obvious that they're ultimately motivated by money as they tickle the ears of the people. That's the final symptom. So those are doctrinal perversion, personal arrogance, malicious behavior, motivated by greed. All signs of a false shepherd infected with spiritual botulism. And we need to be aware of what that looks like, especially at a time in history where doctrinal imprecision is celebrated. And where there is an unending assault on the authority of God's Word, and where mediums to propagate and popularize damning heresies, such as the ones the majority of evangelicals subscribe to today Are more readily accessible than ever. In fact, even though Second John ten and eleven says not even to open your door to a heretic, let alone to eat with such a one, we have such an obsession with a celebrity culture that we're perfectly okay with lying charlatans, as long as they qualify as celebrity. That is by far our greatest threat as a civilization. It's not cancer. It's not any virus, some drug, some genetically modified corn. It's not a political party or a government. It's not war. It's not famine. It's not economic collapse. You need to understand that the greatest threat to the human race is a false gospel that leaves you dead in your sins. It's a real issue, folks. What better false gospel than one that calls itself Christian? You need to be aware of what false doctrine looks like because... False doctrine results in false hope and false assurance. And the way you do that is by knowing what the truth looks like. And you need to be aware of what false shepherds look like so you're not so easily carried away by their deceptive words that are more readily available to you than at any other time in the history of the world. Let's close in prayer. Father, Since the fall of man, we have been born dead in our sins. And even as regenerate believers, we recognize we are prone to wander and heap up for ourselves teachers that tickle our ears in accordance with our own desires those who make us feel better about our sin or call our sin something else in order to soothe our conscience. But Lord, we pray that You would continue Your sanctifying work in us through the precious ministry of Your Word. And we would grow in humility and in our dependence on your truth. That as a church, we would love your rich, deep theology. Because we love the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we want to be equipped to carry the true gospel of God, the only gospel that saves, to the world. And raise up disciples who bring honor
0: to your name. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. You've been listening to the expository Bible teaching of our pastor-teacher, Pastor Matt Tarr, on the High Point Baptist Church sermon cast, and we pray you have been blessed by what you've heard. If you have any questions about the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or if you would like to speak with someone concerning salvation through faith, please reach out to us right away. It would be a great joy and blessing to minister to you. Contact information can be found on our website. If you have any additional questions or comments regarding this sermon, would like to know more about our church, or would like to submit a prayer request, just visit us online at highpointbaptist.church. Additional sermons can be found on the Sermoncast page of our website and may be downloaded or streamed free of charge. Our website again is highpointbaptist.church. Thank you again for listening. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Copyright 2018, High Point Baptist Church, All Rights Reserved.